This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Garrett Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Garrett Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app that makes training fun. Because fun is fast. Kreuzer. That's a bit of Welsh for you. Tom, we're back. Episode two. How are you doing? I'm all right, G. You've been going down memory lane, I believe. Almost literally down a lane called memory. <laughs> yeah, quite a few times as well, actually. It's quite a long story. But So I had a shoulder up this month and uh, up in Wimslow, this, the hospital was. Len Funky Funk. Apparently he's the best shoulder guy around. He's got all these jerseys in his thing, so he must be pretty good. Rugby players, a motorbike. Really? Riders. He certainly uh, flashes the... Oh, how do you say that now? What do surgeons do? He lets you know everyone he's operated on anyway, with a nice jersey on the wall. Yeah, and they sign them with their hands and their arms, not with a pen between their teeth, have they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. all the writing looks pretty good, so I think we're lucky, unless they're, you know, left-handed or whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, yeah, so obviously driving up from Cardiff to the hospital and came off the motorway and suddenly I was on all these old roads that we rode on on the academy and I don't think I've been on those roads, like, literally since... I left, you know, before, well, before London 2012. So, yeah, proper reminiscing, actually. And there's, like, just random things pop into my head, like when we were out in the lanes once and we were riding in the snow and we stopped in Starbucks and we all get this message from Rod, our coach at the time, oh, don't worry about going out today, lads. The weather looks bad. We are like, yeah, Rod, we're already out. Have a load of that, Rod. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I got some brownie points. But, so, yeah, a a lot of reminiscing, actually. And I say a lot because I had to drive up twice because... I was due for an op on a Wednesday and then it got cancelled and it got rearranged till the Friday. So I basically drove up to Wimslow Tuesday, drove back to Cardiff Wednesday, back up Thursday and then back down Friday. So that was a great week. Oh, I love being on that M5, M6. <laughs> Beautiful, that. It is a beauty, isn't it? How's the shoulder feeling now? What was the operation? I'm assuming it was something to do with stopping your shoulder falling out every time you go around a bend. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Just... Yeah, it was a stabilisation, pretty much. He was calling it a latage. Um I texted you that as well, didn't I? And, yeah, you uh, did. I thought it was Latterjet, <laughs> but it turns out that maybe Latterjet is that sort of budget airline you go on on a stag do. <laughs> You're in good company with that one, aren't you? I know there's quite a few big-name rugby players have had it. Is there any grafts involved? Do they have to take a bit from anywhere else and stick it in? Yeah, so we took a bit of bone from my collarbone area. I don't know exactly where. And then, yeah, stuck that somewhere else i don't know exactly to be honest and then <laughs> pinned it down and it basically stops it coming out now so um <laughs> what about the collarbone is that not weaker now well it might well be but i've got a plate in it so <laughs> so that's all good they were think we were thinking about taking the plate out actually but that seems like dicing with danger to be fair yeah it's like a double sort of whatever you want to call it was jeopardy yeah that's the one but at the same time, uh, I think a lot of the bone has grown around the plate as well now, so it'd just be a bit of a nightmare to dig it out. So yeah, just leave it in there and it just add to the metal. And how's the shoulder healing? Are you back on the bike? Uh, not back on the bike, but yeah, it's, to be honest, it's a um, bit sore than I anticipated, which Is probably it? sounds stupid because, yeah, I got sliced open and bone moved and stapled in. But yeah, I think because the collarbone, it's just a collarbone, isn't it? And they just sort of, put a plate in and that's it but it's well it's a shoulder a bit of a joint it's got to move and that so 
it's just weird. You know, I was thinking like, you know, when you have a cold, you have a blocked nose and then you realise how much you breathe through your nose. Yeah. I realised how much <laughs> I move my arms. <laughs> what, you because, thought previously you didn't move your arms? Well, no, I did, but I didn't really appreciate my, the range in which I could move my arms. Yeah. Because now my right arm is basically out of use, yeah. So if I took my sling off, it's just down by my side like a, a soldier at Buckingham Palace, you know, when they do that. <laughs> so yeah, I just, like, it's just a ball. Like, like Sarah has to help get a t-shirt on me i can just about do that now actually but the first few days i was reliant it's like so i has to dress max and then dress me <laughs> and then you know like eating is a pain because just try eating with your left hand or brushing your teeth with your, like if you're well, right-handed obviously i'd like you to give me an honest answer to this question and you'll know where i'm going here can you wipe your own ass <laughs> again it's tricky <laughs> Um, but yes, I can. Yeah, Sarah doesn't have to do that, luckily, Whew. in between Max's poos. Um, <laughs> but the painkillers have blocked me up anyway, so it's not too much going mm. on, to be honest. But anyway, that's, we won't go too much into that, Tom. But the general anaesthetic, that's always good, though. And have you been knocked out properly? I have. And I always think this is the delusion of a man. Like when they when they go count to 10, I always think, yeah, I'm tough. I'm going to get to 15. And you're like, <laughs> one, two. Yeah, it was funny this time round. The guy says to me, "Oh, this isn't going to put you to sleep. This just you might feel a bit drunk. What's your favourite drink?" I was like, "Oh, I love a Moscow Mule." Actually, it's like, "Do you feel drunk now?" And I was like, "Ah, I do feel like I've had like three or four, a bit way, a bit whoa." And then the next thing, I'm waking up, and I was like, "And it's done." And it was such a weird feeling, like because beforehand I was thinking they're going to put me to sleep now, and time is going to pass as normal. But for me, it's going to be one second I'm awake, the next second I'm I'm awake again. But all this has happened in the blink of an eye. Does that make sense? It does. I always think it's one of the great miracles of medicine that they know just they know just how much to give you to send you to sleep, but not to send you into a sleep from which you'll never awake. But also <laughs> not just to make you fall asleep for like five days. That surely that is a really fine calculation. Uh, it amazes me that you don't have a general anaesthetic and some people wake up in like two weeks time, like Rip Van Winkle or something. <laughs> True, but I just assume they give you something else to wake you up. Oh, like a, like an intravenous coffee thing. <laughs> yeah, just to bang in a few espressos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is always, um, well, it's not daunting, but comforting, I guess, really. But when they put an arrow on, on on my yeah. right arm pointing to my right shoulder yeah. this is definitely the shoulder and they asked me about five times before they operated what shoulder is it but now oh, it's just like yeah it's just quite painful although I didn't really help myself I got back from Wimslow to Cardiff on the Friday down the M5 M6 which was yeah went out for food because Sar's cousin from LA who she hasn't seen for two years was down so yeah. it's like oh, I'll make an effort and my arm was still numb to be honest so it didn't really that was okay Sar's brother-in-law had to cut up my steak for me, but yeah. <laughs> so that was nice. But then, and then we went to Cardiff rugby game on the Saturday. So yeah. I didn't really help the recovery as best as I could have really. But since then though, I've realised I need to just rest a bit now. Well, what we should do, I think in future episodes of the pod, we can follow your recovery by asking you to do a certain task. So I think your next task for next <laughs> week's episode, if you can hail a taxi... Oh, and definitely then, not. That's, that's a big. That's a first. It? That's a big first step, Tom. Putting your arm right up there. Okay. How about just eating with my right hand? Okay. So can you feed <laughs> your, can you feed yourself breakfast? <laughs> it's it's going to be the next week. We'll delay hailing a taxi to what week three, week four? Yeah, 
I may have asked the physio about that one, but yeah. Okay. And what do you want for week two? You play snooker? Well, I, I attempt to play pool, yeah. Okay. So do you think you could get enough mobility? Because your shoulder doesn't need to come up. It's more elbow-based if you've got a nice cueing action. Mm. I mean, I don't want to compromise your recovery here. If, <laughs> if your physio has said don't play snooker, don't listen to me. This, this is my point from the start. You underestimate how much you use your shoulder. Yeah. And I'll operate on yours and see see if you're up for playing pool. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway... Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how the shoulder recovers. Um, in the meantime, um, I'm glad you've been going down memory lane because the guest you've lined up for us this week is someone who played a very important role in your past and, to be fair to him, played a very important part in arguably the greatest sporting summer that Britain will ever see. Most definitely. I think he's probably... Oh, it's a tough call, but do you reckon he's the biggest household name in the UK? I'd say he is. Cyclist. Oh, cyclist. I know the Queen's more famous, but... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cyclist. Cyclist. <laughs> he's also had... He's had a, a quite a wide-ranging number of looks, hair-wise, facial hair-wise, down the years. He's currently rocking something a little bit more extreme, isn't he? Do you like it? Before we get him on? Let's be honest. <laughs> I prefer the new one, the new look. To oh, the really? Well, yeah, there's no in-between with this guy, is there? It's, it's quite extreme. Everything's extreme. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of top well athletes are quite extreme. I think anyway, aren't they? It's like all or nothing a lot of the time, and he certainly is. So, which I'm sure he's going to tell us all about. Yeah, let's get him on. Right, G. Big pressure here because you were in charge of finding our first guest for season two, and bearing in mind that we finished season one with Chris Froome, that's potentially a bit of a mountain to climb. So, who have you gone for? Well, Tom, I think I've actually I've nailed this one. Today's guest is both the road and track cyclist. So, you know, I've, I've gone in big. Well, he's won world titles in four different disciplines, eight Olympic medals, five of them golds. Not a bad record, really, is it? Also, probably, well, we'll ask him if this is his proudest moment, but first British rider to win the Tour de France, first rider to win the Tour and Olympic gold in the same year, to be fair. If you haven't guessed by now, you're not a cycling fan. I don't know what you're doing listening to this, really. But welcome to the pod, Sir Bradley Wiggins. Thank you for having me. How was that for build-up? Was that, was that enough? Because G sometimes struggles with his build-ups. <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. Didn't Everything I've wrong. done, G's pretty much done since as well. So oh, Lacking a few golds, mate. But um, yeah, I'm feeling a bit of pressure now because you're, you're the most professional guest we've had. You know? You've got your own pod. You, you're a pundit. You're on the motorbike. You're, yeah, this is your life now. It is, yeah. And it's a real privilege to do it. You know, it's... Um, I never thought I'd end up doing something like that, to be honest, when I stopped cycling. I didn't know what I wanted to do for a few years. It took a while to find myself, to be honest, and detach from being a cyclist and uh, everything that goes with being a cyclist. You know, you've got to be a real ruthless <laughs> cyclist, and I realise that, you know. <laughs> you have to be. You become a horrible person at times. Um, and it's not normal either, you know, just like a bit quite antisocial at times. And to be able to still comment on and accept the, the sport I love, you know, it's, it's just great. It's such a privilege to be able to, to still earn a living out of cycling. It's great. One thing, like when you're commenting on races, is it hard? Do you have to remind yourself how hard it is as an actual bike rider? Because, you know, you know what it's like. So a few DSs, they retire as a cyclist and then they're a DS two years later and they're just like, oh, come on, boys. It's still five degrees. You know, it's not that cold. 
all that type of shit. <laughs> yeah, no, I think when I'm on the motorbike, I have a much more of appreciation of just how hard it is still. I think when yeah. you're sat in a car or you're sat watching it on a screen commentating, it's easy to forget just how hard it is. But when I'm up close to all the guys there and just seeing getting people getting dropped or, you know, like you crashing or something and coming back through the cars and you're right on the ground, you're right in the heart of it. And I don't miss it at all when I'm there because, it, you know, the appreciation of just how hard it is. It's very easy to forget how hard the sport is when you've been away for a couple of years yeah. and you put a bit of weight on and you get on your bike and you still think you've got it and you can compete with them. But <laughs> it's a whole different world. And trying to relay that to the back to the audience is just like, you know, it's, 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 it's impressive. It really is. And just you forget how skinny the athletes are as well. Up close, you know, like I'm 100 kilos now and I was 68 when I won the tour. Fair play. Wow. Yeah. And I think, where the bloody hell did I put that on? Because you still look normal, but you, you look so anti-normal when you're, when you're cycling, you know? You know, turning up at training camp, sort of pinching your skin. Here's a little known fact for you, by the way. Do you know Brad was born in Ghent? Froomey was obviously born in Kenya somewhere. So I'm actually the first British-born winner of the tour. <laughs> Just to point that out. You are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're very much a Brit. As well, I'm, I'm the fair. last Belgium to win the tour. <laughs> yeah yeah that is true so so brad can you remember the first time you saw g yeah was it a yeah Jones i racing? um i think i was training for the world championships in 2003 which were in stuttgart and i won the individual pursuit there and i was doing a training session at the track um in the summer and the academy lads were there so i was there with simon jones who had who led australia to their worst ever olympic performance in tokyo <laughs> just recently <laughs> <laughs> with uh, one bronze medal amazing medal hall but um we were there in the track center and the, the academy lads were there so they had matt bramier i think ian stannard uh, mark cavendish and i remember that day particularly because i saw mark cavendish in the corridors when um where they used to have the mechanics workshop just as you came in past the reception and cav was really bubbling around because he'd just done his times i think he had to do a 325 stand in 3k so he'd got onto the squad and he was going to get some funding because he tried it, he'd attempted it about a million times or something. And he, anyway, there was, um, I saw G across the track centre, and Simon Jones said to me, watch that kid over there, he's going to be, he's the next you. And they said that about a few people at a few times, but I remember particularly that one, because for some reason, like, you just knew it was going to be true for some reason. Like, um, And then after a year later, so I think G won the, you won the 20k at the Junior Worlds in 2004 then, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, in LA. And we came back from the Olympic Games when I'd won in Athens. And um, Simon said that this kid wants to talk to you up on the banking by the Reg Arish statue. He wants your advice on something. So I went up there and I was talked to G. G was world champion. And I was the first junior world champion we'd had. And G was the second junior world champion we'd ever had. So he asked my advice as to whether he should go abroad and ride for Rabobank the following year in the under-23 setup or go on to the track squad. And I said, well, it depends what you want to do. He said, I want to win Olympic gold. And then I want to turn pro on the road and do the Tour de France and stuff. So I said, you're probably better off staying in the track system because of the races you get given now. And you'll probably get lost in the Rabobank system. But, um, and that was it really. And then obviously two years later, he was in Bordeaux at the world championships. Then three years later, we won in Palma. And then we rode, we should have ridden the Madison together in Palma, but they put Rob Ailes in. Which was, <laughs> that was an experience. Uh, and then, and then Beijing, we won the world title that year and we won the Olympic gold together. So it, it all sort of panned out. That's nuts, actually. I'd totally forgotten about that conversation. I remember it now, now you said, but... Yeah, you know, do you remember? Sometimes... We had it up by the Reg Harris statue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dead nervous being like, oh my God, Bradley Wiggins. 
So, G, what did you think of Brad when you first met him? Because, as you say, he'd done these things. He'd been through the system and done things ahead of you. Were you was there any element of being in awe of him? Yeah, I definitely looked up to him. He's like maybe five years older than me. So basically everything that he was doing is what I was dreaming of doing myself. So like Brad said, he won a, the Junior Worlds. That's something you know I was really hoping to do. He went onto the track, did what he did in in the Olympics. You know, I was dreaming of winning Olympic gold since I was a young kid, you know, not in cycling, just going to the Olympics and winning gold. And then yeah, turning professional, you know, riding grand tours. Then when he won the tour in, in 2012, that was when I thought, mm, maybe that's one thing I'm not going to be able to emulate really. But yeah, it turns out it, it went pretty well. So yeah, I've, I've always had him to look up to really, I guess. And uh, him and Nicole Cook were the sort of biggest influences really, yeah. Brad, what's this story about when G is living in Newton Le Willows, he's got his house there. What's this story about you rocking up in a um in a white BMW? Yeah, I mean G lives sort of half an hour away from me and I think the winter of two thousand eight after Beijing, we just um I think we both sort of set out with a view to just try and see what we could do on the road. I think we both sort of exhausted the track program a little bit. But that winter we trained through the winter, me and G used to get together and do like five, six hour rides. And I'd drive down to Newton the Willows, park up on this really ropey street and leave an M3 there all day. <laughs> yeah, I remember being so <laughs> nervous. Like, see Brad turn up in this, like, yeah, obviously a nice car, a nice white M3. And it was a little dead end sort of, yeah, housing estate, wasn't it, really? I was like, you sure you want to leave that here? Like, uh, but it was fine. And it was just this mad little old person's home, wasn't it? That you'd, like, just <laughs> yeah. bought and they'd moved out and you hadn't decorated yeah. it at all. And it had, like... You had, um, I just remember you had, you had optics in the living room with like bo- bottles of vodka and stuff yeah. <laughs> all around these optics, you know, like <laughs> putting the glasses up. Yeah. The thing is I was single one night, so I didn't have a, a girlfriend or a wife to sort of help me decorate really. So I just had a big TV and. And Ed lived down the road, didn't it. he? Yeah. We basically lived together. He was 200 meters down the road. So he was constantly over. It was great actually. Yeah. So yeah, we used to do these rides, like these mad rides up to the Trophy Bowl, like five, six hours in December and stuff, just with a view just to getting the miles in and getting ready for the summer, the, the following year. And then early 2009, then we went off to Mallorca together as well. We trained, the women's squad were there and we were just there chairing a room training and we did this lap of the island once. Do you remember we did this, um, yeah. well, not a lap of the island, this standard circuit, but it was, we left it quite late to get out because it was raining. And we climbed this big mountain called the Pigmayor. And over the top of the Pigmayor, it was, it was already getting dark. It was like 40, 50 minutes from getting dark. But you only had to descend down an hour back into the port. So we were pushing it anyway. But there'd been a landslide and the, all these rocks had fallen in the road <laughs> and blocked the road completely. I mean, when you say rocks, it was like the end of the world. And we had, we had a choice of like climbing over these rocks or going back five hours round. And G tried to climb over for a bit and I, in his <laughs> cycling shoes, do you remember? And I said, this is ridiculous. You're going to kill yourself. Um, so we descended in the dark then because we stood there for about an hour debating it and descended back to Solaire down this big climb that we'd gone up. And we found this little, it was Christmas Day in Spain. So it's like the 6th of January, Christmas Day. And so nothing, one cafe was open and we were in there at seven o'clock. We had spaghetti bolognese and everything, waited and we got Dan do you remember DS Dan to come and pick us up? Yeah, well, I was going to say, neither of us, neither of us had a phone, did we? Or money. So we didn't have it, didn't know any numbers. So I think you had to ring your wife who then rang the I rang job. home and I got, I got yeah. someone to pass the message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. Just tell yeah. Dan we're in this um, cafe in Sola. And we were just like, that was like the, um, all the groundwork for that season road ride were 
we were very similar riders, so we would like half wheel each other to death, and we'd go out and do like three hours zone three, like like in the rain and stuff. Like that set me up for the season, to be honest, because I I think then. G never got to shine that season because you crashed your terrain and broke your femur and everything, didn't you? I think you broke your pelvis, didn't you? Pelvis, yeah, and yeah, into a tree. And yeah, that wasn't the best. But yeah, I missed most of that year. But to be fair, you say kicked each other's heads in. I think you just kicked my head in more. And I was just there for your morale, to be fair. I just suffered. But like that, that loop as well, we were doing efforts as well, weren't we? It was like, it wasn't just a standard just ride, long ride. It was like efforts and all sorts. That's why we were like, we need to try and get over these boulders because there's no way I can ride back up the pig and down and, you know, everywhere else. But good times, yeah. It was, yeah. And then we were on Sky then the following year. G was always on a classics program and we did the tour in 2010. You won the National Road Race. I was shit that tour. I'd done the Giro and stuff. I couldn't handle the pressure of the squad and Dave and this sort of... I was rooming with Steve Cummins most of the time, which wasn't good for me <laughs> because <laughs> we were just taking the piss out of the Team Sky all the time with our dehumidifiers and fucking all sorts and but yeah i mean and then <clears throat> 2011 i think we rode paranese together where i got third yeah um but g was pretty much on the track program then that following 2012 i remember the, i remember before london olympic games shane texted me and said um g's got food poisoning so you might have to step up next week if he doesn't come <laughs> round. so i'd done yeah. the tour and the time troll and i was having to get i hadn't been on the track for two years so they were they would like because they had a fifth man they had andy tennant it was as much use as a chocolate fire guard, to be honest, in terms of team pursuit. Um, <laughs> Say it as it is. Well, no, I mean, just, yeah. you know, he, he couldn't he couldn't live on live at those numbers. He'd be the first to admit it, you know. Um, yeah. And I was I, I remember um, I sent G a message in holding camp saying, go out there and show him who G is. And I lent you my booties that I won the time trial in. Yeah. Because you lost your booties or something. God, I'd even forgotten that. So Doug Daly drove him across from the, um, the, uh, the road camp in London to the, to the village where you lot were staying. So there's a couple of things that come to me there. Like, which part of your road career did you enjoy the most? Obviously, the end of it, you were winning the biggest races. Probably, but probably the- Garmin. Yeah? Garmin, yeah. Because it was just so relaxed, and I wasn't expecting anything. The, the expectation levels wasn't that high. I was living in, we were living in Girona, and it was nice to get out of the UK and just be surrounded by, like, Americans that were, like, quite laid back and just have a different outlook on it. And we used to just go out and race. It was a really, really good time to be a cyclist but then then dave came knocking on the door then with big money you know and i think the money sort of attracted me more than anything and with a promise that they'll do things like they did on the track and make their own bikes and things and i thought if i'm ever going to win the tour then i have to go back to the system that i probably didn't like the most really which was being in that sort of dave set up and it was very intense you know um, quite cutthroat as well so how about the track then did you enjoy, enjoy your track days compared to Garmin? Or? Well, I always missed the track. I mean, I'd lo- <laughs> I loved the process of the track. I loved the process of going through all the training and, the, you know, like the rolling 5Ks early in the morning and then, you know, the track sessions in the afternoon. I loved the process of doing that, going in and short and sharp. But I hated competition. I never, ever enjoyed the competition. And I hated – I just I could never get my head around it. Just the intensity of it and, and there's such little room for error to get it right. I enjoyed the team pursuiting more than the individual pursuiting. I remember once you said, um, I think it was like Family Guy or some sort of cartoon that came on and you're like, oh, I hate this. This reminds me of like, I was watching this before such and such a world or something like that. Is that, did I remember that correctly? Like you just, yeah. there's certain things which remind you of that competition. Like even if the competition went well, it's just the, how you felt, felt at that time. It just reminds you of that. 
It just, yeah. So it was always a lonely existence, the track. And um, winning was the standard. There was no second place, really. It was always about winning. And any time we got second, it was a disappointment. But I knew coming in on 2007, when I came back to the track, after you guys had lost the Worlds in Bordeaux, that um, we had a special group, you know, with G and Ed, because they were really youthful and really hungry for success. And me and Paul had sort of been there before when we'd got medals, but not ever won anything. I think it, it inspired both of us, like just you and Ed's youthful exuberance, you know, and um, hunger for success. And you guys would get up in the track centre and Olympics and things and just um, take it with a pinch of salt. And I think that really helped us. It was just, yeah, I just think it was, it were good years, those really, but they were very intense. I don't know, really, like this year, watching them this year get like fifth or sixth, you know, it's just, that was the first Olympiad they'd lost since Beijing. And when I was in the track centre this year, I just, I remembered, it all came back to me. I just remembered just how, just how intense environment it is. Like you live for four years, training for four years for this three minutes, three and a half minutes of racing and two turns or whatever it is. And you've, there's no room for error. Like just being in that chair before you get up in the gate is, um, is the worst thing you'll ever experience. Yeah, those beeps. Every time I hear those beeps, it reminds me of the, that time. Brad, when you look back at 2012, does it seem quite surreal? Because there were moments in that year. The one I'm thinking about is the opening ceremony of the Olympics. As, mu- as much as the Champs-Élysées, Paris or Hampton Court on the throne, it was the moment where you came out at the opening ceremony to ring the Olympic bell. And I was in the stadium and it was a surreal night in many ways. It was just like some mad fever dream. You couldn't believe all this stuff was happening. But the biggest cheer was when you walked out to ring that Olympic bell in a yellow shirt. It just felt, on quite an impossible night, it felt like maybe the most impossible thing of all. Yeah, I think I just took that in my stride at the time because um, that all happened that day. I'd come straight from the tour into Surrey and we were still in this this bubble from the tour and we hadn't realised the effect it had on the British public. We flew Sunday night straight to Surrey. We were protected from the world. And then I think on the Friday... Dave said to me that Sebastian Coe had been on to him and said that they want you to go and do Ring This Bell. But we had the road race the next day. And he didn't want to tell Cav and all that. I think he ended up having a word with Cav to see if he was happy that I went and did it. Because obviously Cav's, it was Cav's big, um, big race, that one. And we were staying in Hyde Park Corner in a hotel the night before the road race. Because it started, on, it started around the back of, uh, I think it started outside Buckingham Palace. And um, I drove from the village in the afternoon, uh, I drove from Surrey in the village in the afternoon with Doug Daly to the stadium and they put me in this room with McFly outside the stadium <laughs> you know, the band the boy band I was chatting away with them and I didn't they knew who I was which was bizarre you know because all these people knew who I was and it was that was kind of try hard to get your head around when you're in that Tour de France bubble and you just lock down and you, and you you have no you don't no idea what it's like going back home you know what the, the effect it's having when you're winning all these races and then I just had to put these earpieces in and then they said right these doors are going to open you have to walk through ring the bell wait till someone tells you to turn around and then come back out and do that so so I did all that <laughs> but because I had talk back pieces in my ears I couldn't hear the crowd I could just hear the you know because you're just silent and then. Um, all I saw were these flashes everywhere, you know, and I just had to concentrate on walking up to the to the bell and ringing it and then coming back out. And once I came back out, Dave said, that, that was amazing, bro. That was amazing, superb. And we jumped straight into a car, a black Mercedes, me and Dave, chauffeur-driven, and we had 18 police motorcycle escorts around us and then two police cars back in front and rear. It was like a presidential entourage, you know. We got whisked straight back to High Park Corner. It took us 17 minutes from the London Stadium back to High Park Corner. 
and they were they were going ahead stopping it was like the presidential would get you know and um <laughs> i was straight back to hyde park corner and i walked straight up the stairs and straight back into the into the team meeting for the road race and cav was putting his shoe cleats on his new shoes for the road race and rod was doing the talk and and that was it it was all forgotten just like it happened so quickly like i just took it in my stride i probably didn't realize that just how big a moment that was yeah that's one thing i was going to ask you know with it was such a whirlwind like around you at that time like well two questions really was it going you weren't unknown but going from just brad to this household name bradley wiggins was that hard to deal with and also do you feel you, you took it all in at the time or because i found especially beijing i didn't really take any of it in you're in that little bubble as you say you know you're just concentrating on what you got to do you don't want to mess it up was it well did you take it in yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, no, I probably didn't at the time. I didn't appreciate it, but I ended up sort of playing a character, really, like a role in, in probably an insecurity. And I had this veil of playing this sort of rock star. And I, I think it was a good disguise, really, um, to sort of walk through life like that, really. And the fame and the adulation, I couldn't handle that as me. I was never very good at taking praise. It probably stems from my childhood, really, which I realised a lot about my childhood. In latter years, when I retired, I reflected a lot back and a lot of the trauma I dealt with in childhood. And I witnessed a murder when I was 15 and never really accepted that. My my head teacher got stabbed when I was 15, Philip Lawrence, outside St George's School. And um, I, I, I probably all those events that happened to me affected how I was as an adult, really, and growing up without any social skills and that from my mother. And my dad got murdered in 2008 and things like that. And I think it affected me into adulthood when I had my own kids. And I was never good at sort of um, handling sort of public fame and adulation. So I think I handled it a certain way and I would be quite shocking and contentious and sweary and like I'd go and get drunk at things in order to be able to, and sort of perform and play the fool, you know, and things like that. And I think that... That didn't serve me well long term, really, because I built up a perception then that holds stands for a long time after that, really. And I was dealing with a lot of stuff in my personal life as well, really, which I think the impact that that had on the kids and trying to keep up this image of Bradley Williams, who's really strong and Tour de France winner and all this. I think that that I, I ended up particularly towards the end of Sky. I just I was quite lonely, quite a loner, really. I used to just rub on my own all the time and wasn't enjoying it. And I was just going through the motions all the time and just ticking boxes. So when I did the hour record and stuff, I was just like, it was just go to the stadium, do it, and then go back, really. I was no, it was more for everyone else at that point. Everything after 2012, like, I never really enjoyed anything after that again. It was just a case of, you know, I never went back to the tour. Uh, the whole fallout with Chris Froome, which was really regrettable as well. Like, I, I impacted on that a lot on the way I behaved. And um, it's just been really nice as well to, like, make peace with all those people since then you know like me and Froome met for the first time actually at the tour this year in a nightclub at the end <laughs> and we hugged it out and you know speak to him a lot now and yeah it's just but it's like really liberating you know it's going back and 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 behaving like you should behave really and I think cycling's so consuming and so um I don't know it's just it's quite childish and petulant really as well the way I handled a lot of situations but that that just stemmed from not knowing how to cope with things, you know, um, and it was uh, it impacted on the relationships around me and stuff, you know. And I sort of left Sky on bad terms as well, really, um, which I sort of regretted, really, because I was sort of the maker of that myself. It must be a strange thing, Brad, because you grow up as a kid, 
and you're totally obsessed with cycling and on your bedroom walls there's posters of cycling heroes and you love the kits and that's unusual at that time certainly where you were growing up and then you achieve on the surface of it everything you'd ever want to achieve olympic gold medals first british male to win the tour de france you win the olympic time trial i mean that's everything that the 10 year old bradley would have wanted to do and then you do it and you realize that actually it doesn't make you happy no, but I think I think that I only achieved that because of the adversity I'd faced in my life as a child. It was that adversity that was the drive to get out of the environment I was growing up in. And it, I was sort of running away from something, really. So if I hadn't had that dysfunctional childhood, I don't think that I would have ever achieved that. Because sometimes you need, which is quite polar opposite to G, you know, because obviously you had quite a, a good upbringing, good family structure and things like that. But I've never met anyone like G in terms of, his will to win and just like you know how hard in terms of he sort of supersedes me in many ways in terms of like i'd I'd very easily throw the towel in things if things weren't going right but g carries on with broken pelvises and things like that and um (laughs) it was admirable really but i mean it's um so i don't think it's it's not a um it's not true of every situation that you need to you know you have to have some sort of adversity in your life to, to achieve great things i just think that um everyone's different and everyone has a different path but there is something that that makes different athletes different and special there is a drive and an individual focus that like mine always manifested in some in a person i don't like you know when i look back i don't like the person i was when i was cycling and there's always been a tendency to go polar opposite to that in since retirement because i never want to sort of bring that person back and it's it, i suppose it's just it's it's quite an abnormal life you know when you from 16 onwards i was this sort of child protege who was sort of always like you could do no wrong everyone does everything for you you get away with murder you can behave however you want to behave and people shrug it off and go oh you know brad will get away with that you know and things like that and it's you're you're sort of encouraged to be quite selfish and horrible and um it, it doesn't serve you in latter life you know very well but um the nice thing is now i feel like i've come out the other end of it really and it's just I don't have any bitterness towards watching people do well because lots, lots of people also they, 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 they really struggle to watch other people do well you know and they're also constantly talking about themselves and you know it's particularly ex-riders you know that sort of don't like other people breaking their records and things like that and I think that's a real shame if you end up like that because um, I get a thrill out of watching other people do well which is a nice place to be yeah I can get that I think when you're competing though like even for me if I see a rival doing well it might sound bad, but you you don't necessarily like it, and you kind of it kind of spurs you on to to achieve that again or to do something else. Or, but yeah, I totally get once you've stopped and that competitiveness is over, then it should be um, well that should go away, really, shouldn't it? I guess it's harder. I think it's made harder at Sky and Ineos because um, well, there's no other team like it. You know, there's there's they're blessed with so many team leaders and high payers. And Dave almost runs his team like that as well, which is why there's been a lot of success in that. But at the same time, it's quite cutthroat and it keeps everyone on their toes. The minute you sort of come away or fall away from performance, someone else is willing to take that 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 step, really. And so you're always being pushed from behind. And I think British Cycling was like that as well, going back to the team pursuit days. You know, there was a competition amongst the team to win places, really. And, and everyone was sort of scared of their own position within that team. But there was favourites. So Shane Sutton had his favourites, who would always be in the team. I probably made the team in Beijing ahead of Stephen Burke when I shouldn't have done, really. Um, and Steve never forgave Shane for that because I'd been ill before it in holding camp. And, 
a bit like you in in London, G. You know, when you, you just sort of G, uh, Shane had his favourites, and that that kind of always it's nice when you're on that side of the fence, and and you're one of the favourites, but it could be ruthless. And and I think um, the minute I won the tour and sort of took my eye off the ball, really, and ended up enjoying everything back home and everything that came with it. Because if you win in the UK as well, something of that level, there's no shying away from all the, the things that come with it. Sports personality, you know, and it, it'd be stupid not to do it, really. But a lot of the other guys, you know, like um, the Yates brothers when he won the Vuelta and stuff, or Chris Froome, you know, they, they, they don't have that sort of grounding at home, really. So they, they can go back to Andorra or Chris goes to Monaco or back to America and... I think that really aids you then to get ready for the following year. And I think that was one of the biggest things I admired of G a couple of years ago is really was, is he went through all the same things I went through sports personality and everything, you know, superstar status in the UK and Cardiff and Wales, but managed to come back the following year and still finish second in the tour. And I, I was incapable of doing that. I couldn't even make the tour. And um, you could probably could have won the tour in hindsight, looking back, couldn't you? Yeah. As a, well, yeah, a lot of things could have happened, you know, shortened stage cancelled stages you know the way we raced there's a lot of things but at the end of the day it is what it is isn't it and that's how the race went and you know but as you say I was super proud of just being able to go back and, and be on the podium again just after everything all the changes and everything that happens but I mean it's definitely like you know with that G like it, it, after you won the tour you know I was in the same position in that Chris Froome was ready to stand up and Chris is an amazing athlete and you've got your work cut out anyway to try and get your spot back. But there's no guarantee when you've won the tour at Ineos or Sky that you will be the leader the following year. You've got to prove yourself again. And that's the hardest thing. Like every tour you've gone into since then, you've been in sort of a two-pronged or three-pronged attack <laughs> and you never got that status back to just apart from the Giro where you crashed the other year. And I think that's no other teams like that. Most other teams, Bardet, you know, Cadell, BMC, they're, 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 there's no question that they're the leader for the following year and you can you could be going shit early season but everyone's you know still knows that so but sky and ineos it's 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 the only so the following year you came back you had to contend with burnell and it's even when you won the tour i think i remember seeing luke rose said when they, on that last stage into the mountains where Froome was still trying to win the tour wasn't he it's um and it's it's quite hard when you're in that because you've got to manage that it's just staying in that positive mindset though basically and not sort of seeing it as a negative because in the tour as you know it's so intense and you can easily get wrapped up in negativity and you start riding bad and so yeah it's just that was I'd say um the biggest reason why I won really was just staying in that my own little world of positivity really ignoring everything on Twitter and all the outsized noise as well and um but yeah it all went cracking in the end yeah there was that time in in 2012 Brad where I remember the Sun did their cut out and stick on Bradley Wiggins sideburns. Now that's the stuff that you can't prepare for. That's the stuff that you don't see coming. No. And that was sort of um, me playing a persona that I'm not, it's not really me, you know. Um, and I think when I look back now, I probably, I lent on a, on a persona and probably played a per perception in a desperation to be different um, from everybody else almost as a disguise really and I over over egged and over emphasized the sort of rock star thing and I'd sideburns at the tour and that was just a way of sort of being different to everyone else and that took off you know that kind of that added to the to the sort of abnormality of me as an athlete really and how I was perceived because they hadn't seen anything like that before 
but I think that detracted as well. The longer that went on, when I was at sports personality in flash suits and things like that, or playing guitar with Paul Weller on stage, and I and then being drunk at things, and that that kind of it all took away from what I was really good at as an athlete because it just added to this sort of George Best like kind of character really, and and it wasn't really me. And so I look back and I feel sort of I'm not ashamed or embarrassed because I won't betray my former self because I know why I was like that. But perceptions stick, you know, it takes a long time then to kind of um, change people's, you know, because it was kind of that sort of thing that people would look at me and go, God, this guy's playing on stage with Paul Weller at Hammersmith Apollo. He looks like a rock star, you know, he's drunk on the front of all the tabloids, you know, or smoking in Mallorca three days after the tour. And it was, people either loved you for that or they hated you for it. But it actually detracted away from the process and how hard I'd worked to get to there. And I probably, yeah, I think I think it was just a bit of a, a kind of a confusion in my identity as well. But you know, look, I mean, I'm a, lots of people go through that in their life, don't they? They go through fads and spells, and I attached, I aligned myself with a youth culture that I thought and perceived was cool in Quadrophenia, and, and sort of took it to town. But you know, it's nice to be able to talk about it now candidly because it just, I think people go through that in their lives. Mine's just been very well documented. Um, certainly in those years 2012 onwards right till I retired it was uh, tears of a clown for me you can become a stereotype in the eyes of people very quickly can't you just totally by accident like particularly for for the general public for whom cycling only impacts at certain times and for the British sporting public uh, obviously it hadn't impacted as much until you won the tour and in the eyes of people who hadn't known you the year before or hadn't known you as a track rider suddenly you are a stereotype you're this you're like you say you're a mob with sideburns you 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 get pissed you call Sue, Sue Barker Susan mm. yeah and I think the other person who's got a very similar sort of pathway like that really was who I know quite well now is Freddie Flintoff when he won the Ashes you know, and that whole sort of going down Downing Street pissed and things like that, you know, and the, the pedlows and things. And Fred's a very different character to what he was then. You know, he's teetotal now and it's just, you know, people handle success in different ways. And, you know, Johnny Wilkinson, you know, people, those, those sporting moments are always like when Johnny kicked that goal 20 odd years ago, it was, um, Johnny was a different, he struggled in different ways after that, but he was still Johnny, you know, still the sort of, you know, private educated boy, really nice and, you know, supremely talented, but he didn't use alcohol and kind of avail to, to mask that and, and get through it. Whereas probably I did and, and Fred did, you know, when him and KP were sort of drunk and that. And and actually sort of Fred's, like I say, now he's a respectable broadcaster. You know, he's got a great family and he was actually a fantastic cricketer when you look back. But that, all that detracted from, it was just Fred, wasn't he? And he was, um, yeah, he won the Ashes single-handedly for us almost, you know, or was, or was given that mantle, so... I think lots of people go through it, you know, it's just, and it, but it's nice to be able to reflect on that. It'd be, it'd be more of a tragedy if I was still the same person dyeing my hair and a bit like the Rolling Stones, you know, and still trying to play, <laughs> keep this perception up because that's ultimately what it is, you know, like Ronnie Wood and those guys still dying. They're still trying to be the Rolling Stones from the sixties, you know, they have got good hair to be fair. Most of them. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, and I think as I've got older as well, sort of approached 40, I'm 41 now life humbled me as well in many ways. I realised that cycling, it was, although it feels, because it's all I ever did as well from 13 to 36 till I retired, that cycling always felt like life and death at times, particularly winning and losing. And as four or five years, with every year that went on into retirement, you know, I realised that what was important in life and, you know, trying to be a dad to me kids rather than just, because I was always my dad's, my kids' heroes as Bradley, Sir Bradley. But that 
transferal in terms of just not them seeing them not seeing me as Sir Wigo, but just seeing me as dad, which was really nice. And so all those, I think just life took over, but I didn't get enthralled. I suppose I never wanted that fame and adulation, but I wanted to be respected for my athletic ability because I knew what it took to get to that point, really. And I think, but I think being called a hero and a legend daily by people that still come up to me and say that is they think you're cool and the perception and all that sort of stuff. Very rarely people actually respect you for the, you know, whether you trained harder than everyone else and things like that which is actually more important to me, really. It's that process and the application, the ability to apply yourself to something over many, many years. And I think I did myself an injustice by playing that character because it, it devalidated. It looked like I could make it... It looked like I was just a genius that made it easy and I could go out there and be drunk and win the Tour de France, but it detracted from actually the work that I'd done up to that point. And, and that, that wasn't intentionally. That was just me displaying my interests in terms of my looks on the bike while I was at the tour in a, in a desperation to be different from everybody else and being a little bit shocking and contentious in interviews and swearing every now and again was just that sort of rebelliousness in me that really that rebellion um but it I then once I felt pressure and a need to to, to keep that act up when I, the more famous I got and and that was hard going out looking like myself every day do you still love the sport? Is there still inside you? Is there still that 10-year-old kid, that 14-year-old kid who had all the, the posters on his wall, used to buy cycling weekly, used to obsess over the Italian kits or the the thin tubing on a beautiful steel bike? Absolutely, because that was my reintroduction back into the sport was, was getting my collection out, really, that I never spoke about before because... I, I thought it was trying to be cool too, too cool for school, really. And, uh, but ex- I think just accepting my love for the sport and myself as a historian of the sport um, and then getting on the motorbike two years ago and things. I think my love for the sport came out, which almost I won a new sort of um, a new bunch of fans, if you like, through. And I think, I think, you know, just, I think, you know, when your peers text you and say, thanks for that, what you said about me on the TV today. So I think G, I mean, G a couple of years ago when he finished the tour in 2019, um, the first year done, he said, um, the day after the tour, he said, uh, Sarah said some of the things you were saying about me on the telly and that, and I just wanted to thank you for it, you know, just because, and that's quite nice because I mean it, you know, and I think um, there's a tendency, a lot of people like, you know, to, to, to sort of like Roy Keynes and that to sort of slag off sort of certain generation, you know, and it's it's not a normal thing, but, um, and I think that's, um, it's really rewarding that, that you can sort of go out and enjoy watching other people do well. Yeah, I remember that. Thanks for that, Brad. And uh, yeah, more of the same in the future, I think. But uh no, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. I know. Um, yeah, thanks. Well, I wasn't sure how this pod was going to go, to be honest with you. But see, it was. It's been fascinating. Thanks a lot, and see you out on the road when you're on your motorbike. I oh, will do. No worries, mate. Ciao, ciao. Hello, I'm Katie Puckrick. Haven't I seen you on Wikipedia? Because I'm there every day. I've got a new podcast called Dot Com, the documentary series about the people of the Internet. And it starts with that one site we all use, Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website. Who are these people? But it's not. The faces behind the screen, the brains behind the words. If you'd said to me, it will all be 
free. This is a hidden world. A place where people can come together and talk about the things that are important to them. And it's fascinating. We've just found a way in the Wiki universe to do that. I mean, how could Wikipedia not be corrupt at this point? Search for .com and subscribe now. How? Tom, good news. The sponsors are back for season two. That is momentous, G. And Momentus just so happens to be the sponsors of this next bit. But who are they? <laughs> well, for all you listeners that were listening last season, you'll remember them as Amp Human. Aha, yeah, a leading human performance company that works with over 150 pro and elite sporting teams. And once again, we've got an exclusive discount for you. Gee, what's the lowdown? Well, I use uh, PR lotion all the time. You basically rub it directly in your muscles, you get bicarb directly into them and... You know, allows me to maximise training sessions and improves recovery time. Yeah, if you try it, the clinical data says you'll get 53% less muscle soreness and be able to do 25% more training intervals. I like those odds, G. So if you fancy slapping it all over your legs before your next big ride or workout, go to livemomentous.com. So that first bit, all one word, L-I-V-E, then M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S. Dot com. And because you listen to this podcast, we've got you an exclusive discount. Just use the code GTCC2021 at the checkout for 25% off Momentus's PR Lotion. Happy training! Tom and producer Lou, it's time. Time to check in on your Zwift journey and see how those FTP tests went. So Lou... You had no idea what an FTP was last week. So how'd you get on? Okay, so the good news is I did do the FTP test. The bad news is I didn't do the full one. Uh, I didn't do the 20 minute one because I looked far too hard for a beginner. So what I did was called the ramp test and basically ups your watts every minute uh, until you just cannot pedal anymore. And I came away with an FTP of 183. I have no idea if that's terrible or not, but I'm sure Tom is about to tell me his is about 1,000. That is absolutely shocking, G, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's a good start. It's, um, you know, Lou is a very early stages of an amateur. So, no, it's, it's, it's a start. Yeah, I'm only being harsh. I'm actually quite impressed by that, Lou. That's pretty good. Hi, Tom. Talking a big game here. So, what's yours? <laughs> uh, mine, G, having checked this this week, is 279 whatever FTP is measured in. Is that any good? Is it a baseline? Well, certainly your baseline, yeah. I think that's decent, to be fair. I thought you'd be a bit lower. Don't take that the wrong way. No, I have. Or take it however you want. I've taken it the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we have our baselines anyway, so I'm going to give you a couple of things to go away and try, and we can check in in a few weeks and see how you're both getting on. So first things first, you can go and try my own Fun is Fast workout, which is available on demand at the workout library. Now, this takes an hour, so if you don't have an hour spare in the day, there's loads of shorter workouts too, so you can put them in wherever you fancy in your week, you know, alongside your GTCC club rides every Wednesday, 6pm British time, and uh, you should be good to go. Yeah, and if you fancy giving Swift a go, just go to swift.com to start your free trial. We'll see you there. Right, Tom. It's that time in the podcast where we do any other business. And I hear you've got some pretty exciting news for us this week. 
Yes, yeah, super exciting news this, G. Uh, th- things feel like they're running slicker this year. Feels like we've found our feet as a club. Not sure I can really take any credit for that. But the good news is, just in time for the festive season, we've got new merch. We've got T-shirts, we've got some particularly nice hoodies, and by popular demand, we've got some water bottles. Now, we'll put some pics up on our socials of us styling them. Don't be put off if it doesn't work for you. G has got a very skinny upper body. It's not built for the T-shirt, and I'm older than G, so maybe they will look better on you. Yeah, and they're decent quality as well, Tom. So now you can rep the GTCC while you're at the gym, down the shops, just or just lounging on the sofa, really, So not just on your bike, so... How do members go and buy their merch then, Tom? Super simple. Just go to gtccstore.com or have a look at our socials and we'll point you in the right direction. Oh, and while we're talking about kit, we've had a question, G, in from Richie Barlow. Richie says, like many listeners to the show, I have a few questions regarding Ineos Grenadiers kit. What do the riders actually wear? Which jerseys and which combinations? Yes, we get quite a lot of kit actually, Tom. So we got like, Heaps of different jerseys, maybe three or four different jerseys for different weathers, different long sleeves, all sorts. So um, generally I'll wear what we call the aero jersey, which is just basically a lycra jersey, more or less. I train more on the mid-weight, medium-weight jersey. But yeah, you can mix it up. And then shorts, there's about three or four different shorts. So, But we've actually changed uh, manufacturer as well this coming season. So we're now over to Bioracer from Castelli. So... Yeah, exciting times, all new. And to finish, Tom, JJ has asked, can we get some GTCC car stickers for when we aren't riding around, as I love to spot others with British cycling stickers on boring journeys? That's one for you, I think, mate. Yeah, I'm more than happy to take on the role of looking after car stickers, which, by the way, I operate means that I will now ask someone else to sort it out. But take the credit for it. Perfect. Let's do it. If you'd like another podcast to listen to this week, why not try Death of a Sports Star? There's episodes about sporting giants like Kobe Bryant, Payne Stewart, Marco Pantani, Flojo, John Alomu, and more. Just search for Death of a Sports Star. Cheers, mate. See you next week. See you then. That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to Club Secretary Louise Gwilliam, Head of Music Emma Hickman, Head of Social Fionn Clark and our Honorary President Mike Carr. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.